Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and with me I have my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? Not much, and I want to welcome everybody to episode eight. Richie, how are you doing, man? I am doing really well. I think uh, both of us have been doing some travel recently. Where have you been off to? So I recently just got back from Charlotte, and you know it was it wasn't too bad. So I left Fort Lauderdale on on to Tuesday, and it was eighty eight degrees. It was pretty warm. You know, you know, we live in Florida. It's Florida weather. And when I opened the plane door. When I walked through the door of the plane in Charlotte, it was 60 degrees. I almost died. That's leather jacket time here in Miami. <laughs> I almost died. Like the wind hit my face and almost knocked me back inside of the plane. <laughs> I'm like, send me back to where I came from. I don't know what madness is this, but it's the summer and there should not be 60 degree weather anywhere. <laughs> It should be the winter. It's a winter, and there shouldn't be 60-degree weather anywhere. Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, I was I was freezing cold, but of course, you know, I'm the one guy that, you know, has a sweater on, and everybody's running around in shorts and slippers like, hey, this is great weather, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> I think I'm going to catch a cold. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, what about you, Richie? Where have you been? So, uh, I had a quick business trip up to Chicago last week, and... um uh, I like you, man. I just, I, I when I pack, I pack a, a jacket and make sure that, hey, you know, I don't know. I know Miami's hot. I don't have to worry about that, but I don't know anywhere else. So I have dinner uh, the night I landed uh, with a buddy of mine, and uh, we ate at this really great restaurant uh, called River Roast. It's like right on the river in Chicago. It was phenomenal. And uh, I'm wearing a jacket. And so, of course, he immediately gets on Twitter and starts harassing me <laughs> on Twitter about <laughs> the use of a jacket. I'm like, dude, it's below 70. I'm sorry. I I get cold, okay? If it's 92 degrees outside, I probably won't be sweating, okay? there's a, I could I could handle that. Now, under 70, I need a jacket. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's not normal weather for Miami people, man. That is That is unheard of. Or Caribbean people. Yeah, we don't do that. 100 degrees, man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, and if and of course, when I landed, um, like I said, it was a quick trip, so it was like it was the next night or something. And I landed. It was eighty three degrees in Miami, which is kind of a cool night for Miami, but it was eighty percent humidity. And I was like, "I'm home. Welcome back." You, yes, Miami knew what I like. Bring me more steam. Bring me back home. I'm staying here and I'm never leaving again. Yes, I. If I can't see my what I'm breathing, then it's you, not worth breathing. But if you can't see it, are you really breathing it? Exactly. <laughs> that is the question to ask. <laughs> so, who do we have on today, Cecil? So today, I believe we're talking to Mr. Todd Gardner. So Todd is the president and co-founder of TrackJS. You know, you can find that at trackjs.com. Um, that is an error monitoring service for modern JavaScript applications. But if you're in archaic JavaScript applications, then you pretty much just stuck with console.log. Yeah. 
Sorry, but it is what it is. So Todd, the old days. so Todd, he also consults with companies to help develop their business and their products for the web. With over a decade of experience building software systems, Todd has built large enterprise systems, complex software products, and launched many businesses. He's also at the keyboard when he really shouldn't be. That's awesome. <laughs> kind of sounds a little bit like uh, a lot of other developers I know. <laughs> I'll call no name, but, you know. Dave. <laughs> Get out the keyboard, Dave. <laughs> Stop trying to break .NET. Uh, yeah, right. So this episode was recorded on May 7th, 2015. And here's our conversation with Todd Gardner. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. I'll edit this out, but I wore my AK hat specifically for you guys. Oh, shoot. Look at that. That's awesome. <laughs> that is fantastic. I like your episode so far, and your site looks real sharp. So I think you guys are going to be a big hit. Oh, well, appreciate it. You know, Thank you. That, 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 that website stuff is all Richie, so you, know, you can take kudos <laughs> for that. That that website stuff is all WordPress. I didn't do a thing. <laughs> oh, I take it all back. WordPress is the twenty three percent of the internet can't be wrong, can they? <laughs> I uh, don't know. Can they? Uh, can they? <laughs> well, that's uh, I, you know Stack Overflow had an outage uh, this week, and um, uh, Nick Craver uh, from Stack Overflow tweeted that that was one of the big uh, reasons behind their denial of service. Uh, attack was WordPress zombies, and they had got they had, they weren't they weren't patched. They got hit, and boom, everything went uh, haywire at Stack Overflow this weekend. There was a, a WordPress zero day that got released what like two weeks ago. Yeah, got a bunch of the internet on that one. Yep, yep, and uh, it actually broke our theme. So, <laughs> so we were we were down for a little bit. I'm like, why is Uptime Robot coming up here? I don't understand. Oh wait. <laughs> I can't even get into WordPress. This is excellent. Oh, sad. Right. Yeah. Sad panda. <sighs> All right. So, so Todd. So, why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, uh, a little bit about your background and you know the kind of stuff that you're into. Uh, sure. So, I'm Todd Gardner. I'm from a little town called Stillwater, Minnesota, uh, which is uh, outside of Minneapolis. Uh, I'm a um, developer in a lot of different ways. I build businesses. I build software, usually for the web. Um, and it doesn't really matter the language or framework or any of that sort of stuff. I kind of learn what I need to make the thing happen. Um, I don't use the word full stack because I don't like full stack. But, yeah. Um, so I've been developing since 2001, probably, um, undergraduate in computer science, went back and got a business degree in 2010. Um, I worked for an enterprise shop for a while in an IT department doing manufacturing and decided I didn't like that. Um, kind of broke off and started doing consulting, um, usually for companies that do have, like have a software engineering shop and, and sell some sort of software product. Uh, and I love that. Um, I love the culture that companies have when they're actually building software and making money off of software. And then two years ago, a little over two years ago, uh, I partnered up with a couple of uh, friends of mine in the area, and we started our own software company called TrackJS. 
which is a, um, a JavaScript uh, error tracking tool for uh, production web applications that use advanced frameworks like Angular, or Ember, or Backbone, or React, or any of those. Cool. So you sound to me like you have a really good balance of the technical side and also the business side, right? Like you, like you said, like you went back, you got a business degree, you also do you know programming and you learned these different languages. So, so what is that like to juggle, you know, the technical hat and the and, and the businessman hat? It's really hard. I, in a way, I feel like I am inadequate at both all the time. Um, <laughs> starting starting your own company has taught me more about what's really important in software, or at least it has totally changed my opinion. That's, that's a better way of phrasing it. It has totally changed my opinion of what's important in software. And I feel that in a lot of ways I am a more effective developer because of it, but I do far less actual development work. Um, particularly my role in the company has moved more and more into the business side, um, probably because I have you know some educational background in that. Um, so I, I find... In fact, my partners are online right now um, doing some upgrade work, and I'm watching the hip chat log right <laughs> now what's going on. And like some of what they're doing, I honestly don't even understand it anymore because I'm just so far removed. Um, and that's kind of frustrating. But you know, at the same time, to make a business succeed, somebody has to be worrying about the financing and how are we going to find customers and who's going to who's going to want to use us and support them when things go wrong and all. All of those sort of business stuff. Hmm. So, so what do you say would be one of your your biggest challenges? Then you know, juggling that that hat. My personal biggest challenge is letting go of it. So, TrackJS is two years old, and um, the the. Three of us that originally started it, I, I wrote a tremendous amount of code in those days. That's all there was to do was to build the product. And so for the first year, we were all heads down working together, building the product. Um, I spent a lot of time in the JavaScript side looking at you know the very nitty-gritty pieces of how JavaScript works in different browsers and how errors traverse through, through web applications. And I've had to back off of it. Um, and, and kind of let go of control. And I think all developers are inherently to some level a control freak. Is you know that's why they're controlling the computers. That's why they got into this business in some some respect. And so letting go of that, saying you know what this was my I built a lot of this, but I it's not mine anymore. It's ours. Like we're building this thing together and letting that go. Letting letting my, my partners work worry about those different components of it so that I can focus on pushing the, the customer side of the business forward. Um, trying to constantly reinforce that and let, let go of the development as a developer is the hardest part. So what are some of your lessons learned? So you've, you've been doing this for about a couple of years now. So what are the, kind of the big lessons learned that you've uh, that you've come up with since you started this uh, this product. So I guess the biggest thing that you know I, I kind of suspected beforehand, but TrekJS totally reinforced, is that starting a business by yourself, I personally don't think I could do it um, because there's so many ups and downs. Like one day, you know, things are going well and 
you're getting your work like features are, are coming out faster than you schedule or you you land a, an awesome big customer or somebody says something awesome about you on the internet and you're you're on cloud nine and everything is amazing you're like yeah this is really gonna happen and then the next day somebody says something mean about you on the internet or, <laughs> <laughs> or a competitor says, does something to copy you or a customer has a bad experience and quits or or, or something else happens and it's like somebody punched you in the gut and it feels terrible. And if that starts happening, that happens two days in a row or three days in a row or a week, like it's enough to make you want to quit. It's like nobody likes this thing. This thing is stupid. Everybody hates me. I'm, I'm just going to shut this thing down. And I think all businesses go through that and having, having partners to like pull you through it is incredibly important. That, that even when you are personally in the dumps and you just don't have the energy to push forward, having somebody to like keep the torch lit while you take a break or having somebody to like pull you through it is incredibly important. And it's, it's frank, like if I had tried to start TrackJS by myself, well, one, I just couldn't do it technically. Like my partners are amazing. But second, like I would have quit so many times. Um, so, so I guess that's the first thing is, is having partners to help pull you through the bad times is was a really important lesson for us. The second thing, more I guess more of a technical thing, is before TrackJS, I was firmly in the you know great big corporate development kind of way of thinking about software. And so when we started a project, there was, you know, several weeks of effort that inevitably had to happen around you know, getting continuous integration going and getting your code metrics done to make sure you knew what your, your test coverage was and hooking into a half dozen foundational frameworks and getting dependency injection going in. And all of these, these things that are air quotes enterprise grade that you just have to have. And, and what I found is that the biggest risk in software, even in business software, is does anybody care about this thing I'm about to build? I look back and I've spent so many hours of my time working for some company where I build a feature and nothing, like, it never gets used. Either the business unit I built it for doesn't care or the customer that we built it for doesn't know what it's for or worse, like, we launch a new product and, like, nobody buys it. And, and so... When that happens, like all of that time and effort you spent setting up infrastructures and like making sure your code was at you know certain arbitrary um, metric points of quality and testability are just wasted time. So the biggest risk I think is is does anybody want it? And so answering that as fast as possible I think is is the right way to build software. And so a lot of times to answer the question of does anybody want this, you got to write quote well, like bad software to answer that question. And you write some bad <laughs> software, stuff that like you shouldn't do and, and you're frankly embarrassed of and, and you wish that nobody would ever discover it. And you, you launch it for the purpose of learning. Like, does somebody click on this button? Does anybody like want to view this page? Does anybody want to interact with this in some way? And, and you learn from that and if it turns out that people do like this feature, people do want to interact with it in this way, now you can go back and apply those, those, the software principles that you think are appropriate and you can write tests and you can like 
figure out how this thing should work in a more maintainable way. But spending that effort up front is an incredible waste because so many of the things that we do, people don't want it. Like we're, we're just wrong. Like it doesn't, nobody wants it. Nobody cares about it. We misunderstood the customer in some way. And so figuring that learning out as fast as possible is what I think a lot of projects should be optimizing for and they don't. So do you have any, any, any strategies, for instance, for, you know, testing out your ideas before you actually decide, hey, this is a product and I should actually go out and make it? Because I think what a lot of companies do is, you know, they come up and say, hey, okay, this is a really cool idea. I'm just going to build it. Yeah. But without even wondering, okay, well, let me, you know, let me put out a, a test prototype version of it. Let me put it out and, you know, have a couple hundred people test it out and get some feedback and see. You know, oh, okay, well, some people are actually interested in this and I got some positive feedback. You know, maybe I should really make this into a product. You know, so, so where do you yeah. get your ideas from? How do you, how do you vet those ideas out to make sure that, you know, this is actually something that's, that's worth building and spending time on? Yeah, for sure. So I have a little anecdote to share. So um, a number of years ago, I was working in a, in a really big corporation that was going to launch a software product. And uh, that organization, whoever was like the business person who, who pushed for this, had so much organizational clout that like they were launching a new product into a, a market that um, they, they knew the market very well, but they had never had a product like this. This was like a collaboration product. Um, and, uh, and they had convinced everybody to like fund the development of the system. And it took 18 months burning a million dollars a month in developer costs. Wow. We were building out this incredibly large architectural system. And I, I was on, I led one of the teams that was doing this, and there was like 12 teams as part of this. Um, it, they spent an enormous amount of money, um, and it, it was not fully complete by the time I chose to move on. Um, but I found out later that uh, the product had launched, but they had only sold two copies. And I mean, I don't know what they sold it for because this is, you know, giant enterprise corporate to corporate stuff, but I doubt they made back their $18 million on two sales. Wow. That's crazy. And and so just looking back, like they could have learned so much if instead of building out a huge architectural thing over 18 months with tons of teams burning a million dollars a month, if they had just, you know, gotten together and built it little rails app and pushed it out in a month and like just learned like yeah it wouldn't have been perfect it wouldn't have done everything they wanted it to do but they could have tried to sell it and and i think they could have learned from it there's a lot of really great lessons in this book called lean startup which i'm sure a lot of just about everybody has heard of at this point um but there's some really really great ideas in that book around testing your ideas um and, and one of the simplest things you can do is well don't build it build a landing page for your product instead. So like, don't actually build any software, build a page that advertises the software that you want to build and gathers email addresses and then go out and push that out on Twitter and, and see what kind of Google juice you can get and, and maybe even pay for some uh, search engine ads on you know the things that your customers would likely be searching for and just see how much interest there really is. Like maybe throw a price out there, throw out, you know, you're going to sell this thing that you're building for $9 a month or 50 bucks one time or whatever, you know, depends on the market you're going after. But floating those ideas out can teach you a lot. 
if you've already passed that, like at this point, we know there's demand for TrackJS and, and what we're trying to explore are different features. And so your customers are a great way of, of answering that of, you can just ask them, you know, you can, you know, I imagine, you know, most companies have like a subset of their customers that they, you know, trust and, and um, can can reach out to and like give them really good feedback. And, and so we have, we have a, a handful that, that I reach out to and we can um, ask them like, hey, what if we built this thing that does, you know, X, would, would you, would you use that? Would you like that? And, and because we have a, a good reputation, they can tell me, no, that's stupid. Nobody's like, I have a different tool for that. I don't want TrackJS to do that. And, and, and that's great feedback. Um, if you can't get that for whatever reason, or if you don't trust that feedback, that that's when we get to, you just build some really quick and dirty code. So you can, like, for example, if you want to test whether or not somebody's going to share an error, like, let's say I've captured an error, and I want to test if somebody is ever going to share this with somebody else in their company. Well, sharing brings, like, all kinds of, like, permissions problems into it, and, and you have to solve, like, cross-user stuff. And there, there's a bunch of technical, you know, internal TrackJS stuff that you probably don't care about at all to solve that problem. But so what if we don't solve it? Like, what if instead we just put a button up there that looks like a share button, and we measure how many people click on it? And when they do click on it, we just show them a message saying, hey, we're building this thing right now. Do you, are, you, are you interested? We'd love your feedback on what you'd want it to do. Huh, that's a really interesting idea. You know, and, and I agree, like the feedback is so important throughout all cycles of, of your business, you know, in the early stages and even in the latter stages. You know, and I think it's really important that, you know, all companies have some type of strategy that they could lean on so they can know, well, hey, my users are really interested in this feature or, hey, you know, they really didn't like when we did that last thing. We probably shouldn't do that again. Right. So, yeah, ab- absolutely. So so feedback is good throughout. But like you have to trust both the verbal feedback of when somebody tells you something, but you also need ways to measure like actions. Um, because one of the first things, if you're if you're building a business from nothing and you walk around and you just talk to people and like, hey, I have this great idea. If I, you know, built a widgeting system that did blah, 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 or whatever, would you pay me $10 a month for that? And a lot of people will tell you yes, because they like you or because they liked your pitch. But that, that number totally changes if you offer to take their credit card on the spot. And, and then when it's actually about like making a, a financial decision and making their money walk what they're talking um, that, that answer changes quite a bit. And some people who, who said yes, won't say yes anymore. And they probably, probably won't go the other way. Uh, actually measuring what people do is really, really important because they don't always, they don't always know themselves as well as they think they do. So, so I know we've already mentioned track JS a couple of times in conversation. So, so why don't you tell, you know, our listeners what exactly track JS is and, you know, what types of problems exactly you're trying to solve? Sure, that's awesome. Um, so before TrackJS, I was I specialized in uh, JavaScript single-page applications, as they were called at the time. Um, so stuff like Knockout and Backbone and Angular, um, where we were building essentially a JavaScript application that ran in a browser and talked to a series of backend APIs um, and did all of the rendering in the in the client side. And so I had the privilege of building several of these for different clients over the years. The common problem that I would run into is I would always want that feedback from how are my customers using or there for my clients. So how are my clients' customers actually using the product? What problems were they running into? How do I debug an issue if, if something's going wrong? 
So I would build these little, you know, systems to, you know, track when an unhandled exception happens. And, and I, would, I would capture that. And then I'd want a little bit more information. So I'd be tracking like, well, what's the state of my application and when this error happens? I could try and reproduce it. And then I would build a little bit more and I would understand, well, what kind of AJAX events were happening leading up to this and, and what, what sort of data was traversing the wire? And then I would even try and get information about, like, what is the user doing? Are they clicking on stuff? Are they entering into text fields? Are they, you know, interacting with the app in some way? And so I built these little things over and over for different clients. And every time it was becoming a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And so two years ago, um, I decided to, um, to, to make this a thing. And, and I pitched some, some others in our area or in the Minneapolis area who had some similar backgrounds. And so we decided to make this system called TrackJS, which was this drop-in uh, tool that any of our clients, that anybody building uh, an application that had heavy reliance on JavaScript could understand when their customers ran into problems, how did they run into problems? What were the steps to recreate it? So if, uh, if you have a customer and you know, they click on a checkout button or they click to submit a search or whatever, Occasionally, JavaScript is weird and hard, and the button won't do what we think it does. So to know that that happened, you know, what a lot of applications do today is they just don't know that that happened. They wait for the customer to complain, or they wait till they randomly find the same error when they're debug or testing their app. What TrackJS can do is we can tell you that, hey, 22% of your customers are running into this error. You think it's correlated to Chrome. Here are the steps the user took in your app to get into this error condition. So what we're really trying to do is, is give the developers of web applications first the knowledge that pro the customers are running into problems in production, and then second, all of the steps that the customers took to reach that condition so that they can recreate it in their own development environments and fix the error. So, so would you say that, that TrackJS is more of a production monitoring side or is it more on the development side? Or, or maybe is it, is it a little bit of both? Um, well, our focus is definitely for production monitoring. But a lot of our customers have turned out to use us for more of a QA purpose. Um, where they'll install it in their stage or, or, or quality assurance environments. And so that when their testers like encounter a problem, they have like an error report ready to submit to the developers. Um, most developers actually turn off TrackJS in their local development environment because they probably already have the, the browser diagnostic tools open. They can already see when errors are happening. It's kind of redundant to have us both. So with a name like TrackJS, I, I just automatically assume that this is primarily client-side inspection and, and diagnostics. Is that true, or do you guys have any server-side type <laughs> solutions for, I don't know, maybe like a Node.js or a .NET type, type inspection? Well, so our focus is definitely on the client side. One of our, one of our more enterprising customers went and actually wrote a port of TrackJS into Node, um, which, was, which was actually very cool. Um, I think we, we referenced that on Twitter. Um, nice. And so that was that was very cool of them. But our focus is going to be on the client side um, because we feel the client side has a unique set of problems. And that so for most times, if you're on the server, if you have a .NET app, if you have the exception object itself, like you have the exception, you have the stack trace, chances are that is enough context to understand what happened. As you see, you know the stack of classes and what functions are running. And you probably have enough information to, to understand what went wrong and how to fix it. But in JavaScript, unfortunately, the error object doesn't tell you anything close to enough information. Because JavaScript is so 
asynchronous and so dynamic. And because the um, uh, because you'll minify and concatenate all your files together when you deploy it, the the stack trace is full of a bunch of garbage information like A is undefined on scripts.js line 1000. And you don't necessarily understand how did this stack come to exist because it could be several um, asynchronous callbacks nested down inside of um, inside of this user's interaction or Ajax callbacks or whatever. Um, and so you don't necessarily can even understand how did this error um, situation come to exist. And so by combining all of these other context information about like what's the browser doing and what's the user doing and what's the, the network doing and what was the history of all of those things, we're trying to give you a, a better understanding of how did the application arrive into this state? Huh. No, that's that's pretty cool. So, so tell me about you know any type of cross browser issues that you might have because I can imagine, <laughs> you know, JavaScript on IE six, for instance. I don't know if you guys support IE six or not. I hope you don't. But <laughs> no, we do. <laughs> you know, you know, through 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 different versions of different browsers, I I can imagine that you know your stack trace or what you get out of you know out of errors and exceptions. Might look a little bit different, you know. You get well, a different looks... different types of information. So, so when you surface that, you know, in your in your error reporting, like what does that look like? Like how are you able to consolidate that so you get one consistent message throughout, you know, these different browsers? It so it's totally different. That and that is a huge problem. I actually um, last year I spent a good part of the year talking to a lot of different conferences. Um, doing this talk called Traces of Errors. And it was all about how each browser, even the modern browsers, handle errors differently from each other. So if you open up your Chrome debugger and you type throw new error, and you do the exact same thing in Firefox and the exact same thing in IE11, you'll get three different responses. Like the, the, the stack trace will look different. The shape of the object will look different. The, just the format of the stack trace, if you were to try and parse it logically, they're different. And uh, what was... Especially telling is that over the, the nine months or so that I was giving that presentation, all three browsers changed their implementations during the lifetime of that talk. Oh, my like, God. So, so, like, I would be doing this talk at, uh, at, like, that conference in Wisconsin. And then a week later, I'd be back in Minneapolis and doing Midwest JS. And, I'd, like, I would just assume that my talk from last week would still be good. And nope, somebody auto-updated, and now this behavior is different. And like, it was, it, it was actually a very good way to underline the point of like, hey, the browsers are changing this all of the time. If you have to support more than one browser, you cannot rely on this error object being exactly the same. TrackJS supports back to i8. Um, we have some technical constraints that prevented us from going further um, that we could have overcome, but we really don't want to. And nobody has like offered us a big sack of money to support older than IE7. So <laughs> if you're out there and you want us to support IE6 and you have that big sack of money, then call me. <laughs> <laughs> but until then, we're not going to do it. Sure. Uh, but so we, we see all different kinds of, of errors. And uh, even, even today, uh, the same kind of error, like a, uh, something is undefined, will get reported differently in Firefox and Chrome. Um, and, and that's actually really hard to consolidate. And so we don't necessarily know. So if you get the same error, let's say you just have a straight up logical error where you know something is undefined when it got passed into a function. So Chrome and Firefox may report that differently. 
And they, depending on when they, they may actually have slightly different formatted stack traces, even though it's the same code running in the two different browsers. And so we can't, like, unless we knew everything about your code and how it functioned, we can't coalesce those two things together. So those will get reported as two different errors. Now, they'll be very similar, and they'll have very similar um, uh, ratios. Like, we track interesting things about your how many hits come in versus how many errors come in. So we can track, like, how frequent is this error versus your hit rate. And so they'll have very similar profiles of the hit rate of Firefox versus this error and the hit rate of Chrome versus this error. And so we'll be able to do some correlation there. But ultimately, there's still some... I, I can't give you an auto, you know, JavaScript error fix of Matron as much as I'd like to. You know, one of the things that I definitely like about tools like Track.js, for instance, so... So I used to work in a system where I would get these notifications every time that there's an issue. And so what would happen is, so let's say that, you know, this process is running on some type of, you know, automatic schedule. Like every five minutes, I want you to fire this off. And then there's an error in, this, in the system. Mm -hmm. Every five minutes, I'm going to get the same error. <laughs> so what would happen is overnight, my inbox would get, and, you know, obviously we did email notifications. So overnight, I'd come back to hundreds and thousands of emails. And I'm, I'm not joking. I'd literally come back to, you know, 1,300 emails with the, from the same error. You know, and I find that I always found that to be so annoying. Like, I literally, I always sent them to some directory in Outlook. And I just came in in the morning and just hit delete and, like, deleted all of them. Because it was, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> and, and this is actually, like, a super common problem. So like in, in just about every company I would ever consult for, I would end up in this situation where I have you know my inbox and I'd get added to all of these different monitoring tools that were monitoring all the different parts of the system. And every one of those monitoring tools, they always had this same problem of over noise, is, is that they would send you things for the littlest thing. And I don't know if it was, it was probably wasn't always the system's fault. A lot of times it was probably the company's fault. So they just, you know, they wanted to know everything. You'd end up in these situations where every morning you'd come in and there'd be 50 emails. Now, it doesn't really matter. Like, there'd be 50 emails in there from these systems reporting status and these systems having rebooted and these systems doing whatever to the point where you just filter all of it. In, you're, you're, like, trained. You're Pavlovian trained to just ignore them. Till eventually I actually build an Outlook rule that just filters the alerts into the garbage because I, I can't tell the difference between a good one and a bad one. And so that's actually a huge problem for a lot of monitoring tools. And this is something that we're working with with Track.js right now. So how we solve this today is we just do a daily roll-up. Um, and so you get one email a day from us where we tell you, hey, here's everything that changed in the last 24 hours. Here's, you're doing better, you're doing worse. Here's new things that are happening. Here's some things we think you should look into. Um, and we just kind of give you a tickler to say, hey, here's the important stuff that we think you should know about today. And that's been pretty successful so far, but it's, it's definitely not what we want. We, we'd love to get to a point where, like, when, when something really important happens, we want to let you know right away. But understanding what important means is a really hard problem to solve. Um, it is something that we're working on right now where we're trying to understand, like, hey, should we send them a note when a new error occurs that we've never seen before? Well, it depends. How important is it? Maybe we, we shouldn't send it if it only happened once. Maybe we should wait until it happens 5% of the time. 5% of what? So it's kind of a, a, a very self-perpetuating conversation um, that, that we're, we're actually having right now internally on, on what's the best way to do this. But it's a non-trivial problem to solve. So the architect in me just has to ask you this question. 
Mm. So what is TrackJS built on? Like, what is what does your stack look like? <laughs> so a lot of people, um, being that we are uh, for JavaScript applications, just inherently assume that we're built on Node. And we are not. We don't. Have that would be anything. my assumption, too. I, would, I was going to say, okay, he's probably built on Node. Nope, we, we don't have any Node running. Um, we, it, it didn't make sense for, for what we're doing with our stack. Um, most of our stack is actually built in .NET. We use a handful of different systems for data ingestion. So we really have um, three big problems to solve in our architecture. The first is, is the JavaScript library itself, which is obviously written in JavaScript because it's the only option that you have to you know, do that sort of thing in the browser. Um, and that you know, handles the inspection, um, monitoring like what are the kind of things that are occurring in the browser. So then that gets sent back to our infrastructure. And we have to figure out how to handle ingesting data that fast. Because with our business model as essentially something that you drop into all of your pages and send us data about when you get hit and when an error happens, we've essentially set up this giant distributed denial of service system against ourselves, where we are at any given moment getting hit with um, between one and a thousand hits a second, like all day long, That's just, crazy. Co just constantly from somebody because we have customers around the world and so like there's never really a quiet time. I guess Sunday's kind of quiet, but even then it you know data hits never drop to zero. Um, so we we have this massive like, data ingestion system where we you know read stuff in off of the wire and then we have a multi-step um, process to like do a little bit of processing and pass to the next step and do a little bit more processing and pro and pass to the next step. And so that's all written in a series of uh, um, uh, data queues and C-sharp applications that, that do the different transformations that we need to do. And then the third problem that we have to solve is how do we report off of it? So once we have all of this data volume um, in our system, how do we like tell you interesting things about what are the errors we think are important? How do we just direct you into the application um, to find the most relevant things you need to look at um, and give you that context? And so that is a uh, just an MVC application, but it talks to Elasticsearch. That's mm. where actually a lot of our secret sauce is, is, is with how we've structured the internals of Elasticsearch and um, the queries that we run against our data set. Um, and so that is obviously not anything to do with .NET. Um, Elasticsearch is a fantastic application um, written on top of Lucene that uh, we use for all kinds of stuff at this point. Yeah, I've been looking into Elasticsearch recently, you know, just, you know, just digging around and trying to to see what it's it's used for, and it's it seems like it's a pretty robust system for you know if you just want to do like some some really intense indexing and adding you know searching and querying and whatnot to your application. You know, it seems like that's like it's bread and butter versus just being you know, like some generic you know document based database. Yeah, so so that's not it. It's not trying to be just another document database. It's not trying to compete really against Mongo or or Raven or any of those sort of things. Um, but that said, it does have a lot of similar characteristics. A lot of people will use Elasticsearch as like a projection of data housed elsewhere. So like they'll have a SQL server or a Postgres database or a Mongo system or, or whatever, and they'll project their data into Elasticsearch for, for reporting or, or, or other things like that. We don't do that just because it, we're, we never have a non-reporting use case for our data. So we actually will take our data and we stuff it into Elasticsearch and do all of our operations in Elasticsearch. And then occasionally what we'll do is we will extract report data in aggregate out of Elasticsearch and store it elsewhere. But our, the, the time frame that we actually keep 
the detailed error data is relatively short. Um, and so we're not, we're not all that worried about the individual characteristics of, hey, we might lose this document or we might lose the changes to this document because we don't change them. They, they get once after we process them into the system, they live for a retention period and then they get dropped off the end. Hmm. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense actually. So, so tell me about your, your hosting story. So are you are you like a private cloud? Are you, uh, are you Azure? Like, so when we first started, um, we were part of a Microsoft program called BizSpark, which is uh, is pretty popular and was uh, is amazing. Um, what BizSpark lets you do is it lets you get started using Microsoft technologies um, for free as a startup. Is they're, they're betting on you to succeed with Microsoft tech. And so you get heavy discounts, you get a bunch of free credits, you get access to their software. Um, and so a lot of my server-side background and the background of my partners was in C-sharp and, and .NET applications. So it made sense for us to get started in that. And so we started building out um, TrackJS in C-sharp. And at first, we actually were housed for our, our first beta version we were housed in a Windows server sitting under the desk of my partner, Eric Brandis, in his house. And Isn't that how all companies start? Yeah, it, to <laughs> nice. it totally is. But like, <laughs> and it, it makes sense at that point. And so we ran that way for a while until we signed a big customer and our server melted and that didn't end well. So we needed to find a way to like scale, scale up and, and scale out. And so as part of BizSpark, we had a bunch of um, credits on Microsoft Azure. And so that was that was where we went. We built, um, we bought into um, basically all of Azure. We used VMs to host our uh, our data storage systems. We used um, the table storage and, and and Azure table queues for our queuing system that we needed. And we used websites to host IIS, and that actually worked really really well for a long time. Um, but I mean. Kind of recently, we've we've kind of outgrown it in a couple of different ways. Um, it's really been like in the last six months, our, our growth really picked up, and the performance characteristics we're getting out of Azure were just uh, not where we needed to be to do some of the things we we wanted to do, and we were having some availability problems with them. Frankly, that people might have seen something on our blog post that kind of blew up more than we wanted it to. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> Microsoft has actually been very cool about the whole thing, and, and we've talked to them several times in the, in the days since. Um, but so for, for a number of reasons, primarily uh, the, the performance of the system and the reliability of the system, uh, we're moving. So we're actually going to have hardware that our system runs on. We have you know CPUs and disks and network cards and stuff like that. that is kind of new for us, um, but, but all of the fundamentals are, are really, really promising. So, like, we had to learn some things, right? Because we bought into um, platform as a service, and so we didn't know anything about how queues worked, right? To us, a queue was an Azure storage queue. It was this thing on the other side of an HTTP endpoint that we could enqueue on and we could dequeue off of, and we didn't really know anything more than that. Well, so that's that's great to get started, but the problem arises if if something starts going wrong. It's kind of just a black box of like, hey, it used to come back in 100 milliseconds, 
And now it's coming back in 8,000 milliseconds. And I don't know why. And, and we didn't change anything. And it's just like things would change underneath of us. And, um, and so it's really hard to debug that. Whereas with hardware, like you have a lot more control. So, I mean, there's goods and bads with that. There's a lot more that we could screw up. But at the same time, like the performance characteristics of it aren't really going to change unless there's something else going on that we did. And so what we're doing right now is we're moving to, to hardware and we're figuring out um, how to script our infrastructure with um, cool tools like Ansible and Chef um, so that we can, you know, spin up or, or uh, recover and deploy physical servers in a lot of the same ways that, that we thought virtual servers, you know, had, had that on a lock on that, you know, that was what you could only do with virtual servers. But with the infrastructure deployment tools, I can do a lot of those same things with hardware. And I get like astronomically good performance out of those boxes. So, mm -hmm. so for example, so like, um, our current ingestion pipeline, um, varies in terms of like how, how fast it can process from an error hits our front door until when it's in Elasticsearch. It varies on how long it takes. Um, it can be, you know, two seconds to 15 seconds, kind of depending on how busy the overall system is. But on a time when it was, let's say, 10 seconds, that exact same data system on the exact same traffic on our new hardware-based system which has all the same components, just built directly on hardware, is taking 120 milliseconds, 10 seconds to 120 milliseconds. I think that's pretty good. That, that's the performance characteristics improvements that we're seeing. Um, we, we have to set up our own infrastructure. We have to script it ourselves. We have to you know, add some redundancy in place, which, um, which we didn't have to do before with the cloud where we presumed that there was underlying redundancy. So... For queues, for instance, we're, we're going to use Redis. Um, and so we have, you know, client server failover system with Redis. Um, but that wasn't all that hard to set up. A lot of these tools are, are pretty good about doing this sort of thing and being scriptable and being easy to deploy and easy to monitor. So, like, I fully expect that we're going to have some bumps along the road. Um, for the last couple of days, we've, in fact, been forking our traffic and sending uh, copies of every error we get in, into our new hardware-based system um, just to load test it and make sure it's it's going to do that, and we'll probably do that for at least the next you know couple of weeks until we switch over to it. But it, it's looking really, really promising. And so I imagine I imagine this is maybe just a growing pain that a lot of similar businesses hit, where infrastructure, the architecture that they started on, the one that you know evolved out of the necessity of going fast at the beginning, they eventually outgrow it. And like major changes need to happen based on, you know, being successful. And so I think we're going through that right now. I think we're just hitting this inflection point where we need to think about our design and think about our architecture um, that's going to carry us. And then I'm sure it'll be wrong again and we'll have to rebuild it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Isn't that always the way? It, it totally is. Like, you can only know what you know now, right? And so yeah. it's it's a constant balance of like we need to do, we need to set ourselves up for the future, but we don't know the future, and we're wrong about our predictions of the future. 
And so I can plan for, well, here's where we are now. And if we keep on current trends, we can, you know, plan for that capacity and how we would grow. But occasionally things will happen that are just totally out of the blue. And you never thought that that was how it was going to go. And something that used to not be important at all becomes incredibly important. And those are just change the world decisions. And you need to, uh, it can just totally blast your, your system out of the water and you need to figure out how to do it differently. Yep. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, you know, what we were talking about earlier with feedback. You know, I think, again, you know, all throughout your process, like it's so important to just continuously get feedback from your customers. So you can kind of kind of sort of monitor the way things are shifting a little bit, you know, and then hopefully that'll help you to make some better decisions in terms of, you know, here's some of the high value areas that my customers are interested in. You know, maybe we should really start investing some time here or, you know, somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. But you, you always, we always need to watch for what our customers are, are asking for and where the natural progressions are going. But there's that, that old, uh, in fact, this has been repeated so many times, I don't even know if it's true, but there's that old Henry Ford saying that all the people in Silicon Valley say, of like, if the, Henry Ford had listened to his customers, he would have built a faster horse. <laughs> that is true. That's very and, true. And, and, and so, I mean, I don't even know if he really said that or not. Um, but what what's important to take out of that is that like sometimes your customers don't know what they want. So like there might be an area that is something that, Hey, maybe none of my customers want it today. Or maybe there's a, a group of customers that like TrackJS could totally do some awesome things for, but we're just not exploiting that correctly today, or we're not positioning our product correctly today. And so that's the thing we also need to keep our eyes open for is like, maybe there's something that we could do for people who don't, don't even know who we are yet. Yeah, I find that all the time that that uh, customers just, they really don't know what they want. They they know it when they see it, but they couldn't describe it to you at all. Yeah, <laughs> but they'll t- tell you you're wrong when you build it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that wasn't it. What? <laughs> exactly. But this is what you said. <laughs> so hey, Todd. So just before we go, I just have one more question. I go, I gotta ask you. Sure. So what do you do when you're away from the keyboard? Uh, so when I'm away from the keyboard, I'm rarely away from the keyboard. I'm kind of a workaholic. Uh Um, Being kind of starting your own business kind of forces you into that. I mean, no, it doesn't. Like there's a lot of people who can get away with not being a workaholic. I'm constantly trying to like do new things and grow the business when, when I can pull myself away and when I'm not doing it. So I... I love where I live and I love spending time with my family here. So I have a wife and two girls and we live in this cool historic town um, outside of Minneapolis that used to be a logging town and has like a bunch of like old heritage in it, cool downtown and a nice river and parks and trees. And we go and we hang out here and it's, it's pretty amazing. Nice. That's fantastic. It's probably a terrible answer. No, but (laughs) Oh, I think going out and playing in the snow would be a terrible answer for two guys from Miami. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not snowy here anymore. And so, in, and, you know, we've all forgotten about it. And, and so ah. right now we all love living in Minnesota because Minnesota is gorgeous this time of year. But, but, you know, come November, we'll all be like, why on earth do we live here? Why do we live in a, a place where the air hurts my face? <laughs> it's a complete opposite here. Well, we're getting to the the point of the year where it's like, why do I live here? 
I'm melting <laughs> as I walk out to the car. I'm drenched from walking three feet. See, what we need to figure out, like, as a society, is how do we have, like, mobile infrastructure so that we can all live in the north half during the summer where it's gorgeous, and then when winter comes, we all collectively just move south and spend the south or spend the winter in the south. How that sounds like a perfect problem that Airbnb should solve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we can all use Uber on the, uh, to move all the way down south, who's, right? Who's going to use all the empty houses? Like, then there's all of these empty houses in Minnesota in the, no- or in the winter, and then all of these empty houses in Florida in the summer. Like, how do you do that? Nobody's going to want to live the opposite way, right? So how did they do it in Star Trek? They had like this weather matrix or whatever. <laughs> we need to figure that out. Yeah, that right? is. That's the problem. That's the ticket right there. Yeah, we need to control the weather. Or just, you know, all wire ourselves in so that we're per- like matrix style so that, you know, the weather just never changes and we can all just be kept in vats. Yeah, I, I definitely just <laughs> want to be plugged into a vat of amniotic fluid, right? <laughs> And just everything is bliss, right? Yeah. Oh, wait, no, it, it wasn't that way. It was Everything was crappy because <laughs> us humans can't take the bliss part. Uh, I don't know. I think I probably could. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'd like to try it, you know, <laughs> just for a lifetime or so. Yeah. Give it a, give it a once through. <laughs> That's awesome. By, by the way, Todd, you hit Cecil's sweet spot. I mean, you were right there, you know, JavaScript, <laughs> web, and that's, that's you know, boom. I'm uh, like, go for it, man. Home run. That's what, I have to ask him. I'm like, what is this built on? Like, I must know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's, it's not Node. Uh, I really like the architecture of Node. I, I like the event loop style. I like, I like the middleware approach. I don't particularly like JavaScript. Like, I am good at it. But I use it because I'm forced to. Because the browser forces me to. Because, like, if I want to write cool interactive clients in the web, like, it's really my only option, my only, the only tool I have. And so I make it work. But on the server, I have so many options. I have so many cool things I could do it in. I so how I mean, do you feel about tools like like TypeScript? You know that are it's almost like, hey, what this is what JavaScript would look like if Microsoft made it, right? Yeah, I I, I like the idea of TypeScript. I've I've actually never had the opportunity to like use it beyond like just playing with it on a, on like a small scale. Um, but I I really like the idea of you know writing in TypeScript and, and using it for the the type checking and to get some new things in it. Um, and I'm excited about some of the things that are going to be coming with. With, with ES6 um, to make JavaScript better. But there's still just a lot of things I just don't, I inherently just don't like about JavaScript. I, I'm not a big fan generally of um, dynamic languages, I guess. It is, I, I have some maintainability problems with them. Um, I, I tend to think, I prioritize more than most developers do around how, how maintainable is an app. Like, how long is it going to live? And it's not whether or not I understand it as the initial developer, but how is the second developer going to understand this? Right. Are they going to understand, like, what am I doing? When I say the options object coming into this, like, do they know what the options object looks like and what, you know, properties are supported on it and that sort of thing? 
Um, and so I don't think JavaScript is a very maintainable language in general. Now, there's obviously exceptions to the rule, and there's like very maintainable frameworks you can do, and, and there's there's tons of things that you can do to make JavaScript really maintainable. And they're awesome, and, and I, I, I try and, and do as much of that as I can. But just as a whole, you have to really work hard to make JavaScript maintainable. Like, the natural inclination is to make it hard. And so if I don't have that constraint, if I can go to the server and I can write in C-sharp or Scala or Python or Ruby or, you know, any of a thousand languages that give me all these different, you know, ways of thinking, I, I, I like having those options. And so Node is probably one of the last things I would pick. Um, <laughs> I, I really like the approach. And I'm actually really excited for um, uh, the the next version of, of ASP that is totally ripping it off um, and using the middleware approach. Um, and I'm really excited about, you know, basically building Node in C-sharp and running it on Linux. Like, I, that, that that is incredibly sexy to me. I love that. So you, you, had, you had mentioned um, JavaScript and not really liking architecturally. I, I just, I go back to... Uh, Gary Bernhardt's uh, presentation at CodeMash. Uh, what? <laughs> I love that. So, shows, I love that so much. <laughs> and and it, it just uh, it's like what what? <laughs> it just all the little crazy things that JavaScript does. I think uh, Ruby was in there and a couple other things. But it's like that doesn't make any sense. Who who yeah. who did that? And, and and so those things totally don't make sense. And it was it was very very funny. Um, I guess my. Uh, even even if those things all still existed, or even even if, if all of those specific things were fixed, I think I would still have some issues with just maybe it's not even. I think I would still have issues with JavaScript overall because it's just the default way of structuring this application where it, like it's kind of sometimes there's objects, but sometimes there's like bad ways of doing objects and. There's just there's so many things that make it hard to build a maintainable application. Like it's too easy is the thing. Is it's too yeah. easy to be lazy. Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully some of the new stuff that they're adding to ES6 will help fix some of that, right? Like so the modules, you know, the ES6 native modules and, and also, you know, now we have real classes, right? So so hopefully that'll help us structure these applications in a way that's you know, a little bit how we structure them in, in on the on the server side with .NET or even Java, right? Yeah. Like we'll have these packages that we could ship to people, and you know, these components of reusable code that's are built in this consistent way, right? Yep. That we could you know more intelligently say, okay, well, this is how this is going to work. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that's going to be really good, um, and I think that's going to really help uh, build up more maintainable web applications. Um, we just need to you know find a way to kick. IE8 off of the support list of all these applications so that we can actually start writing it. We should all just boycott, man. One day, we, everybody should just go on the web and say, okay, anything after, anything before IE11, like, I'm just not even going to, you know, pay attention to. Well, so Microsoft said they were going to do that. Like, it's what, January 18th, 2016 is the end of support for IE8 and 9? Yeah, I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah. We'll see it when it happens, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Supposedly, they said that you know on that date they they had a kind of a roundabout way of saying it, which might be their way of like 
getting out of it later. But it was essentially saying, like, unless you are on the latest oper or the latest browser of an operating system we still support, we're not going to send security patches for it anymore. And so based on that, like I eight nine nine should not be supported anymore as of that date. Yeah, but they, you... they they said that with um XP, didn't they? And then after a while it was okay, well if you pay us X amount of dollars, we'll continue to send you updates. Like didn't they do that for a little while? <laughs> It may, it, I, they totally did. And so that's like the biggest problem is because the only people who still use IE8 are usually people in, in giant corporations and governments and stuff like that. But unfortunately, those people have all of money. And so like when you're building a web application for like a business to business purpose, a lot of times we still have to support that because we're targeting people who are a giant, you know, corporation that is forced to use IE8. Boo. I, I, I so my the things that I would work on mostly is, is I would always work on like um, B2B apps typically. Um, something that was like a for pay thing that one business would sell to another. And I have never built an app that didn't have to support IE8. Ever. Yeah. Yeah, I don't blame him. Like I'm so envious of like these guys at like design firms and they get to build like stuff for the public web and they're like, what's IE8? Like we just don't even have to worry about that anymore. I'm so yeah. jealous of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, I I won't tell you that I don't have to support IE. Oh. I won't say that to you. You won't say it to me, <laughs> even though you don't. Yeah, <laughs> I, won't, I won't say that to you. <laughs> we want to thank Todd for the conversation and the mind-imploding JavaScript knowledge he's just dropped on us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com or on Twitter at AFTK Podcast. Mind exploding. Boom. You can subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, you can comment and rate us. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, you may not want to. But subscribe to our newsletter anyway, where you'll get behind the scene access to Away From The Keyboard. Next week on Aware from the Keyboard, we'll have a conversation with a Mr. Ray Bailo. And it's much calmer than we are right now. It better be. <laughs> it's a good conversation. We'll see you next week. We want to thank you for listening to Away from the Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego.
We want to thank Thod. Thank Thod. Thod. <laughs> thank Thod. Thod. You kind of sound like Michael Tyson like right Thod. there. Yeah, I said Thod. I was thinking General Zod. Kneel before Thod. <laughs> Bow before your Emperor Thod. We should get like someone that's old Superman music to play in the background. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Super Thod. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Have you ever thought if you put glasses on Thod, he looks like Thod Kent? (laughs) I always wondered why he always disappeared when that guy showed up. Hmm. I just thought he had gas. But you know what? Uh oh. He still has his parents. <laughs> <laughs> we need to be committed. We need to, you know, so they need to set us somewhere and knock us up. I, I, I think we just found our after track. Oh my God. People get- <laughs> I had some, I had another conversation that I was talking about in any framework. I'm like, oh, that's it's different. It's just, and I'm like, no, we just, we just found it. Thawed. <laughs> Thawed. Yeah, I mean, after General this, people thought. are going to be like, yeah, I'm never going to hire these dudes. These guys are f- idiots. Like, <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom, idiots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's go. <clears throat> Yo, go. We want to thank Todd. Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to... I, Thank Todd. Thank Todd. Thank Todd. Thank Todd. Okay, thank I'm sorry. I had to do that once because you, you you told me that a couple weeks ago, so I, I had to get you I once. I did. I did. I did. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. Thawed. <laughs> Kneel before Thawd. <laughs> oh my god. And you know you should do you should get the echo. You know that echo. Oh my oh my gosh, you know thaw. what? <laughs> you know what we missed? What's that? Gorilla Throd. How can we miss Gorilla Throd? Oh we forgot about Gorilla Throd. <laughs> we gotta save that one for next week. Uh, what else we have? Lex Throdster? Hmm. What else do we have? Now I'm going to look it up. Let's see. Captain Throd. Captain Throd. Throd Boomerang. Eobard Throd. <laughs> Eobard Throd. <laughs> Eobard Throd. <laughs> Here you go. That's that's fantastic. That fits perfectly. <laughs> oh, uh, with that mixel throd. Hmm. That's a that's a really obscure one. Um, Guardians of the Throdixy. Guardians of the Throdixy. I like that one. <laughs> I like that one. Guardians of the Throdixy. Uh, 
you know, these guys could have been like, I'm never coming back in the show again. These guys just had like a whole 10 minutes <laughs> of making my name sound like some weird superhero. Throtside? Throtside. Throom Day. No, Throom Day. Throom Day. Throm Day. Throm Day. What else we got? Hmm. Hmm. Of course, we could go on the Spider Verse. No, we could do Throtimus Prime. <laughs> now we're going hardcore. <laughs> Throtimus Prime. Green Throtlin. Now that just sounds nasty. <laughs> Throtum instead of Venom. No, that doesn't uh-huh. well. Throttage. No, see, that's Carnage. That's this Agent Throd. Let's see what else we got. Wonder Throd. Wonder Throd, of course. How can we forget Wonder Throd? That's 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 like vintage, man. <laughs> I mean, we got Super Throd. So we have to have Wonder Throd. Ladies and gentlemen, you forgot. You forgot Bat Throd. Bat Throd. <laughs> I'm Bat Throd and the Throdwing. That could be a band. Bathrod and Throdwig. Of course. If you're going to go that, you got to go Spider Throd. Spider Throd? Yeah. Yep. Sand Throd? Let's see what else we got. Um, Electro Throd. Maybe. Maybe. Hmm. Let's, let's see what else we got. I could go the Beyond Throd, but that's really obscure. Beyond Throd. The Beyonder? Beyond Throd. Let's see what else we got. The Iron Throd. Throd Boy Prime. Oh, Ah. there you go. (laughs) The Fantastic Throd. Oh, the (laughs) X-Throd. Okay, no, we got to stop. No. <laughs> I'm cutting it. No, that's it. That's it. That's, that's oh, I'm it. cutting all this together. That's all going into bonus track. <laughs> if you're still listening to us, and you've listened to five minutes of us mispronouncing Todd as Throd in Superheroes, I love you. We appreciate you so much. <laughs> You're the reason why we do this. You're the reason why I sing. We gotta start. We gotta throw some Kirk Franklin in here. Oh, right. What's <laughs> um, that song? Do you I am. Say? I am not gonna sing like Kirk Franklin. You can put some. I cannot. You can put some stomp in there. Stomp! Oh, stomp! 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 See, sir, are you with me?